The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from the Gospel of John, and it's in connection with having finished the Apostles' Creed, a connection, a reflection that we find at the very end of the Apostles' Creed in our Heidelberg Catechism. But we'll begin by reading from John chapter 5, the verses 19 to 30. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been persecuted by the Jews, and they have sought to kill him, and yet he was spared because his work on this earth was not yet done. And so he responds. He responds after they have done these things, and because he also has, as it says in verse 18, made himself equal with God by his words. They understood very clearly what he has been claiming by his words. And so we come to verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son cannot do anything of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son, And shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I myself can do nothing. As I hear, I judge And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. We'll also read together from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. And if you have a book of praise, you can find it on page 537. Having worked their way through the whole Apostles' Creed, the authors of our Heidelberg Catechism now reflect back on it. And the question that arises is, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never kept any of them and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, 
without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, In recent days, it's been said that much of the world has had their idols stripped away from them. If you've been looking on online forums or looking on Facebook or anywhere else, listening to Christian speakers, you will have heard this kind of language frequently. The things that people had treasured most, that were held most dear, had suddenly been taken away. What's left behind? If everything else is taken away, then what remains? These are the questions that we're asking. If you spent your whole life in the service of one cause and that's taken away from you, what's left? One of the things that people have mentioned with regards to what's going on, with regards to this global shutdown that's happened, is the economy. Not so much in the sense that they value money over people, although such people do exist, in the world, but in this sense, with every percentage of increase in the unemployment rate, other problems increase as well. Cases of domestic abuse rise, cases of depression rise, the suicide rate increases. And why is that the case? Well, there are many reasons for such things, and I'm not going to lump them all into one category. There are no excuses for when people act out wickedly, especially in cases of abuse. But however, when, when we see these things being on the rise, we begin to see something deeper that's uncovered as well. You see, what comes out in times of stress is often evidence of what's under the surface all along. When you're holding a glass of water and your elbow bumps, what spills out? When the cup of life is jostled, what's the result? It shows what you honor. It shows what you see as defining you, where your identity lies. Part of the reason for what's coming out now is that so many people had their identities wrapped up in so many things that are suddenly taken away from them. And when these things are gone, their sense of purpose, their sense of identity is lost. Now, this might not be you right now. But consider this. What are the things on earth that are most important to you in life right now? Think hard about that for a moment. Now, if these things were taken away, what would that mean for you? Is your sense of identity wrapped up in these things? 
This is not something to be said as a rebuke, loved ones, but as a genuine question leading to encouragement. What gives you meaning in life? What do you have faith in? Where do you find your identity? Because what gives you meaning in life will affect how you respond to, well, everything in this world. Hardships, joys, and more. It will give you strength and peace for as long as it lasts. But everything here on earth is fleeting and temporary. Here, God himself extends something to us as a free gift of grace that is eternal. This begins, as our catechism says, with righteousness before God, and it extends to life everlasting. And we'll look at that as we examine our passage today. I proclaim to you the word of God only by true faith in Jesus Christ. We'll see, first of all, the working of our triune God. Secondly, life granted through faith. And third, righteousness leading to life. If we look at verse 24 of our passage today, we will see our Lord Jesus Christ opening with these words. Most assuredly, I say to you, that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. In this short phrase, we see the entire Trinity at work. The Son, who makes the Father known and makes the decree of the Father known, and who carries out the work of salvation on earth, and the Spirit, who is the one who works this faith in our hearts through the Word of God. This is what comes to mind as we also look at the questions and answers of a Heidelberg Catechism that we've come to today. The working of our entire triune God. We just recited that. The working of God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our redemption, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification, which is to say the day-by-day way that he applies the righteousness of Christ to our lives and that he makes us holy, that he transforms us to be more and more image bearers of Jesus Christ, to walk in step with Jesus Christ. Now, there's something that is worth noting as we come to this question of the Apostles, or this this question after the Apostles' Creed in Lord's Day 23. Notice how this question is phrased. It doesn't say, what does it help you if you believe all this? It says, what does it help you now that you believe all this? And there's something in, of the truth of the gospel message that's wrapped up in that. You see, as we've been working our way through the last number of months, we've seen how God had sent, the Father had sent his Son into the world, having decreed it before time began. And you can find more about the Father's decree in Ephesians 1. And you can see the Son as he voluntarily submitted himself to the will of the Father, covenanting with the Father from eternity to redeem a people. Now, the Son is equal to the Father. We can read about that as we look at verse 23. All should honor the Son 
just as they honor the Father. And yet, we see the Son voluntarily submitting himself to the will of the Father. In verse 19, we see whatever the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. And verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now what he's saying is not that there's a conflict between the two wills, but he's speaking of a voluntary submission. The son going into the world to carry out the eternal decree that he covenanted together with the father to carry out. Some have used this to argue that Jesus is somehow less than the father, but not at all. He's equal to the father. As we saw in verse 23, and we also see a few chapters later, he says, I and the Father are one. And after that statement, the Jews pick up stones to kill him because they know exactly what he meant by it. At the beginning of the Gospel of John as well, this same author, John, describes Jesus as the word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. And yet, Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, has chosen to submit himself to the eternal will of the Father for our sake, as the Apostles' Creed points out so clearly. From eternity, he came into time, he became flesh, he suffered and he died. And the Holy Spirit is working to apply this, as we saw before, joining us to Christ's redeeming work in faith, each member of the Trinity working harmoniously together. Truth and justice, compassion and mercy, the triumph of love and the glory of God. This is our triune God. Our God, as we have confessed, in the person and work of each member of the Trinity, as described in the Apostles' Creed. What does it help you that you believe all this? Because while God's work is carried out by God himself, we are called to believe. And this is the second thing that we are to look at this afternoon. First, we stand in awe at the triune God, our triune God working in harmony. But in the second place, we see this call to believe that we find in our passage here in John 5 as well. What does it help you now that you believe all this? While God's work is carried out by God himself, and while it comes with no price, it will not help you if you don't believe in it. You have confessed in the Apostles' Creed the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our redemption, working harmoniously together. But this will not help you if you just see this as just one more religious book. It will not help you if you see Jesus as just one wise man speaking here in our passage today among many. Jesus Christ makes it clear today that life is only found for those who believe. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, verse 26, so he has granted the the Son to have life in himself, 
and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. There is a call here to hear the voice of the Son and to respond in faith to the work of our triune God. Now, at the end of the day, it's not that hard or complicated. You have the words of eyewitnesses, men who spoke and who who touched and spoke to Jesus, God in the flesh. You have the willingness of plain men and women, fishermen, tax collectors, former prostitutes, who were willing to stake their life on his resurrection and his ascension. They were there. You can take them at their word. They had it written down so that you can see it for yourself. You believe what your parents tell you, what they did when they went to the store, the things that they touched, the people that they spoke to, the things that their eyes observed, and it's really, at the end of the day, as simple as that. In the same way, God has ordained real, everyday people like you and me to record what they had seen, what they had touched, who they had spoken to, and to pass it down to us. There is no real reason for unbelief. As we read in our own confessions, Article 5 of the first chapter of the Canons of Dort, the cause or guilt for this unbelief, as well as for all other sins, is by no means in God, but rather in man. God has made it clear, as clear as can be. As our Belgian Confession also reminds us in an Article 2, everything necessary for our salvation is laid out there in his word. And yet, it is the hardest thing in the world. Because despite the evidence, at the end of the day, it still needs to be taken on faith. It still needs to be responded to in faith. And that really goes for anything in life, no matter the evidence. With regards to this, there needs to be trust in the God who wrote the scriptures. There needs to be a willingness to humble yourselves, to take a step back from your own ways of looking at the world and to critically examine your beliefs, your lives, your hopes, and your dreams. Yes, even your hopes and your dreams, because the God who calls us to believe gives us this salvation as a free gift of grace. But then he calls us to live in response, calling us to surrender our lives as a sacrifice of thankfulness to him, expressing our dependence on him. He's shown you are dependent on me and here is what I am giving you. And now he's calling us to express our day-to-day dependence on him in the way that we live. Yes, he calls us to the best way that there is to live in the world, but we take that on faith. We need to believe And none of this will begin to help us. None of the things that we speak with our mouths as often as we might go through the Apostles' Creed, none of this will help us unless we are moved to believe. And this is the beautiful thing as well. Because when we are moved to believe, when you and I are touched by the Word of God, 
When we hear the words of the Apostles' Creed as it summarizes the Scriptures, confessing the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our redemption and in our salvation, then as we confess, we can look back and see that it really wasn't us all along leading us to that point to confess. But as we confess in response to the call that he gives us, we can see that it was the work of the Holy Spirit all along. And for this, we can give thanks to God. This is what Jesus is speaking about in verse 25. He said, The hour is coming and the hour now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's not talking about dead people here. He's not talking about the final resurrection. He's talking about an hour that is coming and that now is. He's talking here in an Ephesians 2 sense. For those of you who might not be familiar with what's in Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 2 it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once lived in your former way of life, following the things of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is the way that we used to be apart from Christ. And yet it's the voice of Jesus Christ that those who are spiritually dead hear as they are brought to life. It's through the words of the one who came as the word made flesh in this world that the Holy Spirit uses to quicken our souls. But when his word goes out, when the Spirit applies his words to our hearts, That is when we are brought to life. And this hour is here. This hour is now. Reflecting on this and recognizing that as we look back, we can see that it was the Holy Spirit who brought us all this way. We do need to look at these words and recognize that at the same time, Christ's here and now is a call of response. It's on the basis of the fact that the hour is here and the hour is now that I want to challenge you today as well if you do not believe. If you're sitting on the fence today wondering if you should believe and commit to Jesus Christ, the hour is here, the hour is now for as long as it is called today. But tomorrow is not promised to you. There's no halfway sitting on the fence and maybe believing. There is no wavering and wondering Judging the pros and cons, if I believe, then this will happen. If I don't believe, then I'll still get to do that. No, such a person is tossed this way and that. And as the Apostle James writes, like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Friends, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you, here and now, as long as it is called today, to respond in faith to the call of our Lord. And as you look back, as you look back in your response, you will see it was the work of God all along. Listen to that summary of the faith as we find it in the Apostles' Creed. 
as we find it in our passage here today. Listen to the Father calling you from eternity as your creator in time through the Son. Listen to the Son who came in time, clothed in flesh, sharing our humanity, who charges you as your Redeemer to listen and to obey, to follow Him. Listen to the Spirit who works this in your heart and who comforts you and stirs your soul to sweet communion with Christ and with fellow believers in response as you hear the triune, the work of our triune God. And this brings us to our third point, righteousness leading to life. As you do hear and maybe as you have heard, as you have by God's grace listened and believed, what a rich gift is given to those who confess the name of Christ. What does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I'm righteous before God, an heir to life everlasting. What's meant by this? Well, that's what we see, what Jesus says in the verses following in verse 25, verses following verse 25. In the first place, we are righteous before God. Our Lord says in verse 25 that the hour is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Would you agree that when you're dead, you're dead? And would you agree that when you're alive, you're alive? Those are two different states of being. And as the voice of the Son of God breaks through the chains of death, he brings you to life. He brings you into the kingdom of the Son. When this happens, it says, you shall not come into judgment, verse 24. Everyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It becomes, as we read, read in question and answer 60, as we, as we confessed, we've moved from one state to another by the grace of God. It becomes as if we never had nor committed any sin and as if I myself have done everything that Christ did for me. How is it possible? Verse 26. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man, which is to say he is the one with authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. He has the authority, the right, as the Son of Man, to legally move all of our sins from ourselves onto himself, and to take all of his righteousness and give it to us. That's how this is possible. That's the righteousness that leads to life. And then, as if that wasn't enough, that incredible gift of grace, as if that wasn't enough, he backs this up with another, an hour is coming. This is an hour which has not yet come to pass, unlike the one we saw in verse 25. This is a new hour with a new promise that we can also trust in. After all, it's our Lord Jesus Christ himself who said it. 
the one who rose up from the dead, promised this to us. An hour is coming, just as those who are spiritually dead hear his voice, so too will those who are physically dead hear his voice. They will hear his voice and come forth, it says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now the second part there, the resurrection of condemnation, might give you a sense of alarm. And this is a good thing. Make no mistake about it, because there is a hell. And apart from the mercy of Jesus Christ, who as we read in verse 27, has authority to execute judgment, you will go there. But here's the beautiful promise as well. For those who heard the gospel of Christ's resurrection and life, those who believe in the triune God, the judge has come off of the throne to suffer in our place. The son who has authority to give from the life that is within himself has now promised to freely give it to you. Yes, but it says those who have done good go to the resurrection of life and and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Have I done enough good? My friends and brothers and sisters, no, you have not. The same author of this gospel, John, on another occasion in, in one of his letters, his first letter, He himself writes, if anyone says he is without sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. You have not done enough good. And yet, Christ has. As we confess in question and answer 61, only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. 1 John 2, verse 1. It says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, why does it emphasize the fact that he is Jesus Christ, the righteous, there? Because it's drawing our eyes back, it's bringing our memory back to what John is saying here, that the Son is given the authority to execute judgment and that he has died and that his righteousness is applied to all who believe. The advocate is our savior. The judge is our savior. And that's the point here in John 5. He is the one who brings you from death to life. And in bringing you to life, he also gives you his righteousness, which leads to life. And his righteousness, which also opens the gate towards eternal life. In him, though you are as guilty as the murderer who hung beside him on the cross that good Friday, who confessed that he deserved to be there. There was no question there. Still, you are considered as having done good. You are considered as those who have done good who go to the resurrection of life. 
as righteous as Christ himself. As Jesus says to the murderer on his dying day, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. You can only enter into the gates of heaven if you are righteous. And there is only one way to be righteous, through the Son who is offered up on the cross. And so as you put your faith in him, your faith in our triune God, the Spirit who works that faith in your heart uses it as an instrument, a channel to run this life-giving promise to you. And it's in view of that that I want to reflect just briefly on one final thing. This isn't just the work of Jesus Christ alone, beloved. To come back to the beginning again. Some of us have this soft view of Christ and a hard view of the Father, as if Jesus Christ works against the Father somehow. But this is all from the eternal plan of the Father. Verse 30 In Ephesians 1, it says he decreed it from eternity. But if you look at verse 30 of our passage, my judgment is righteous because I do not seek to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. It's the Father as well who's not working against the will of his Son. The Son coming before the Father against his will and saying, don't bring condemnation on this person, but the Father sends his Son to redeem for himself a people, and he looks at those people as righteous. And then it's applied to our lives through the work of the Spirit. Our triune God is involved in this from start to finish in his beautiful work of salvation. As our idols crumble around us in this world, look, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As our idols crumble around us in this world, let this be the historical foundation as the anchor for your soul. And then rest secure in the perfect love of the perfect Trinity who works in perfect harmony to make you righteous, to apply this to you, and to usher you in to eternity. This God who works to restore what you and I have broken down. This God who then brings you into communion with himself again. This God who gives you the righteousness leading to life, transforming you day by day from glory to glory. And he wants to live with you who believe for eternity, no matter how needy and how broken you are in the here and now, so that you can bring glory to his name as you love him with the love with which he first loved you. Amen. In response to the proclamation of the word, let's now sing together from Psalm 68, the verses... Two, three, and ten.